in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give one to you. So raise your hand. There'll be somebody to give one to you. If you need one of those handbooks as well, uh, raise your hand and we can pass one of those to you. I want you to be able to take notes on this and, and have kind of a, a real good sense of, of the story of God as is given to us through the Scriptures. This series grows out of a class, the Gospel Academy course that we teach. The second one is... I believe it's five sessions on the Bible, and the very first class, we go through the whole Bible in 45 minutes, and we put up a chart and take you through the whole thing, and it's a way to really put it together. And what we're doing in this series is taking each of those sections and breaking it down and and spending a Sunday on it. We're going to spend eight weeks, and in that process, you'll be able to put it together. I used the analogy last week of hiking in the Sierras this summer in August. Um, did an 11 and a half mile hike uh, out just north of Yosemite to this beautiful lake. Uh, we were all alone out in this area, you know, just enjoying uh, the wilderness. And then six weeks later, I was uh, in Minneapolis and I'm flying home and I look out the window. This is in the Cherry Lake area, it's called. I look out the window of the plane and there's Cherry Lake directly below me. And I can tell because it has specific features. It's got a little island in the side. And then I start to see where we've hiked. And I remembered back when we were hiking, you know, I wish I could see over that hill. I wish I could see how this is connected to the desert and, and over on this direction. I wish I could see how, you know, it connects kind of to the west here. And I can't see as well. I mean, it was beautiful to be hiking. But, I, you know, you, just, you don't have the perspective that you have when you're in an airplane flying above. And so looking down, I was able to see those same canyons and ravines, and I could see how they were connected and where this particular mountain went, and it was glorious. I could see how it all fit together. And in a sense, a lot of us have an understanding of the Bible that's more like that hiking experience. We've, we've walked through specific passages but we maybe don't understand how they connect together. And it's really important for us to be able to understand the Bible, to be able to connect the various pieces together. So the whole goal of this series is to give you a framework within which you'll be able to put the various stories of the Bible and understand how they interrelate. And so we're breaking it down to the high points. We're looking at the eight most important uh, aspects or sections of Scripture. Some of them are going to be longer. Some of them, like today, is a specific passage. Uh, and, and, and we're going to put these together. And I've given you a little bit of a framework for this. Last week we looked at paradise and what are the conditions of paradise. And this is really going to be the key for for processing through this whole series. There are three aspects, at least, there are probably many more, but three I want to highlight that are central to paradise, three conditions. And so uh, we put up a chart and we talked about how we're with God, uh, we're we're together in community, And we're in the garden. Those are the three key elements of paradise. That's the way God intended uh, our existence to be, to be in that kind of condition where we're with Him, close to God, we're in community, and we're in a perfect place. And what we're going to see throughout the process is that that those conditions get lost, and then God embarks on this wonderful adventure to pursue us and, and restore us to that place. It's going to be different. It's not exactly the same, but it's going to have those principal uh, elements that will be with God, will be together, and we're going to be in the garden. So we're picking up in chapter three. This is the second stage in the process. Um, we've talked about the perfection of the garden with God in community, and now we're going to see how that's lost. Chapter three, starting in verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So 
In other words, watch out for this guy. Watch out what he says. He said to the woman, did God, and I'd like you to notice here, he's using sort of the generic term for God. We've we've been using, remember when we telescoped in to look at the creation of human beings, the the language changed from talking about God to using the personal term, the Lord God. Um, It doesn't come through in the English as clearly as it does in the original language, but you'll see that uh, the Lord is capitalized in small caps in your Bible, and that's using sort of the personal name for God. So, so God became very personal in that creation, and now, uh, in this moment, uh, the serpent uses a more generic term for God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, he's distorting uh, the words of God. God was actually very generous. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And, and the, the, the serpent, who's, who is shrewd and crafty, is twisting the words, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now she's kind of getting caught up because she leaves out the word every tree. She just says we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... Okay, so she's using the generic term now, not the personal term for God. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she's totally added in that part about neither shall you touch it. That wasn't in the original. So she's caught up with what the serpent is saying, and she's sort of looking askance at what God has said, and sort of adding to it, you know, we have this sort of legalistic bent to us, and so she's adding to the rules. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. As a For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a very shrewd way for the serpent to approach this because, in fact, as we'll see later on, when they do eat of the fruit, they don't immediately die, but they do enter into a new kind of existence that has the hallmarks of a death-like life, separation from God to some degree, and then they eventually do die many, many years later. So it's a very shrewd sort of comment that the serpent is making, and this is the way it always is with the serpent, and then later as uh, the, the, the concept of the serpent gives, gives birth in the scripture to the full concept of uh, Satan himself, there's always this element with Satan in which he's promising more than he can deliver. He always promises big and delivers small, and we'll see that uh, in the outflowing of this. Um, verse 6 and here it is, this is, this is you know, really focus in on, this is the moment when everything in the world changed. Life was one particular way and, 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 and just, it changed. And there's, there's 11 ands in this, in the original language. And so it's just and, and, and. It's very tersely written. This incredible moment is explained, changes, the, changes everything about our existence. And it's so matter of fact, verse 6, so that's really an and in the original. And when the woman saw that the tree was good, for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now you see the inflated expectation that they have results in a deflated outcome. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together 
and made themselves loincloths. They tried to cover up the shame that they suddenly felt. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sigh with me. What a loss. We would long to be in the garden with the Lord God walking, present among us. They have that, and because of their shame, they're reduced to hiding in the trees. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, and, and in my view, this is one of the, there is the greatest question ever asked. Um, we should be asking this question of each other all the time. It's amazing that God would ask this question of us. Where are you? Where are you? And he said, the man, we're going to get the whole story again now in reverse order, starting from the backwards to the front. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Way to stand up. Take responsibility, man. Bro. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And of course, the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The community has crumbled in their midst, and the blame has started being passed, and the man is being passive, and and the woman's blaming the serpent, and the serpent was deceptive, and, and it's a mess, just like that. And the question is, what will God do now? He gave them perfection. They had it. There it was for the taking, for the owning, for the enjoying for the relishing for all eternity. And they said, no. I'd rather be in charge myself. What will God do? Verse 14. The Lord God, we're back with the personal. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, which is a symbol of humiliation, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. Now, you you need to really... Understand that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, 
while the serpent is nipping at the heel of the offspring. So there will be this, this sort of this forever uh, interaction between conflict between the two of them, but eventually it will be overcome in that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, which is a death blow. If you're hearing echoes of the gospel, you should be. And of Jesus, you should be. Verse 16, the woman, he said, and, and this is really interesting, he puts a curse, he curses the serpent, but he doesn't curse the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, and, and I can testify to that. Um, our first son was 23 hours in the coming, and it was the most painful day of my life, and I wasn't even in the midst of the pain. Your desire, he goes on to say, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, and, and we're entering into a you know, difficult territory, or at least a complicated territory here, one of those hot-button issues in the relationship between men and women. And I've decided, as I said last week, I'm not going to stop at every one of these and completely pull them apart, because then we would never get on to the next uh, thing that we need to see. But I will just make a couple of comments in terms of uh, expounding this particular text. Um, your desire, now we don't, it could be desire in a couple of ways. It could be desire in that she will be too accommodating. She will want so much for his love that she'll be extra accommodating. And it was interesting in Bethany, there was some of that in your testimony uh, early on. There was that desire to, to, to be accommodating to, to, in order to keep the, the, the husband around or the, 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 the man around. Uh, but then it could also mean that your desire will be in, in an overbearing sense. And, and maybe it's both of those. Uh, and we have to kind of spend more time picking that apart, going through some of the rest of the scripture to really untangle that. Um, and then the husband, for his side, he shall rule over you. And so what was beautiful and wonderful in this relationship that was, was community at its perfection has now been broken. That's the key thing. It's been broken. And the two are at odds with each other. And they will be. And, and, and yet we must remember, too, that when Christ comes and when the disciples teach about this relationship, they begin to help us to redeem it, and, and, and men are called uh, to, to be like Christ in sacrificially leading and loving their wives, and so we see the, the brokenness is beginning to be redeemed, but that's, that's another story down the road. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, and again, he doesn't curse Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, so Adam's problem was that he obeyed his wife above God. There was a passivity to him. I have eaten and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground, again, not him, but the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death entered in with the entering of sin. And he's not saying that work is bad, but work is going to be a lot harder because of the curse on the ground. There was work for Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they had job, they had dominion, they had tasks to do, but now that task is going to be a lot harder. In verse 20, the man called his wife, 
wife's name Eve, which means life, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They tried to clothe themselves, and here comes God on the scene to clothe them in grace. A gracious act. The beginning of something beautiful and wonderful. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dash. Doesn't happen very often in Scripture that you have a dash like that. But we're supposed to imagine the ramifications. What if after they eat, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they ate from the tree of life which gave them eternal life and so they had an fallen eternal life. That's what he's protecting them from. A gracious act. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and to the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword, a guard standing at the entrance to the garden that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Have you ever seen a movie where you know there's something sad in the rearview mirror of the car that you're watching and the camera focuses in like that. That's the picture I get. This is like the initial version of that and the greatest one ever. In the rearview mirror is the place of glory and paradise and perfection and they're moving away because of sin. And yet in the midst of it, I'm not even going to go there yet. And, and so then uh, the outworking of this uh, the fall continues on in, in the next chapters, all the way through chapter 11. We have Cain and Abel, and the ramifications extend, and the flood, and then there's Babel, and it just sort of this sin just sort of goes outward, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And so we have the three conditions of paradise. We were with God together in the garden, and if we could put those, can you go back a little bit, actually? Uh, yeah, we'll just, so I'll... I didn't need to do that, I guess. But um, we're, we're with God together in the garden. That was perfection. Now go to the next one. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, and then here's our church. No, the, the one before that. If I would have not said anything, it would have been perfect. But I tried to uh, over, uh, what do you call? Uh, okay, so creation is our first stage with God together in the garden. Uh, and then now the next one, we've got the breaking down of that. So if you go to the next slide. Um, first of all, without God, we find that they're without God. Now, they're not completely without God. This is something we have to be careful about. They're not completely without God because uh, in several instances we see this. Um, God could have said to them, I'm leaving you and forsaking you, but he didn't say that. He would have had every right to do that because they turned away. They sinned. They turned away from God and went elsewhere. He would have had every right to say, I'm leaving you, forsaking you. What about a flood with no ark? flood with no ark. There was an ark in the flood to save some of the people. So God didn't completely turn himself away from the people. He's not fully withholding. We have a name for when with God fully withholds his presence. You know what that is? Hell. That's what hell is. That's the definition of hell. When you're away from the presence of God. And the definition of heaven is the place where God is most fully manifest. And so we're in this in-between phase, but in comparison to what it was in the garden, they're definitely without God. And then we have discord entering in. There's the blame game that goes on, and the marriage relationship is broken, and we have to talk about that, because if you've seen any sitcom or movie or been in the world, you've seen how this works, right? 
um, the discord, and then they're displaced. They're, they're, they're asked to leave. They're kicked out of this beautiful garden, and we have this exit scene, and, and the consequences of their fallenness is the loss of the conditions of perfection that were there in the garden. But in the midst of it, there are these signs of hope. The, 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 the offspring of the serpent will be crushed by the offspring of the woman, for example. That, that God doesn't curse the people. I love that. God could have cursed the people. He curses the serpent, but He doesn't curse the people. He curses things having to do with their lives, but not them directly. And, and, and then, of course, the beautiful scene of, of God clothing them. And then they're being sent out so that they don't eat from the tree of life and have an eternal fallenness. There's hope. And starting next week, we're going to put a material, we're going to kind of see how that hope begins to materialize in God's plan. But I want to just pause now that we've walked through this and just pull out a couple of things um, briefly here on the, the situation as it stands, the fall. Now, just like in last week, there's a whole constellation of doctrines that come out of this text, beliefs about who God is and who we are as human beings that, that, that fit into our lives in various ways and that if we understand them, we'll begin to see how the outworkings of them change the way we look at our lives and the world around us. And so let me just briefly mention a couple of those. And the first one is that evil is not on par with God. We see that in this story, that, that the serpent is a created being. And sometimes we have this sense that well, there's bad in the world, there's evil in the world, and there's God. And it's like, people always use this illustration, it's like Star Wars. There's the Force, and then whatever, I don't even know what the other side is. The dark side, yeah. It's the Force, and they're equal. And you don't know how, you don't know who's going to win, right? It's, it's sort of like, oh, who knows? Neither one's necessarily stronger than the other. That's not how this world is constructed, according to the Bible. In this world, the evil is from fallen creation, and is nowhere near on par with the Creator Himself. And it's an important distinction because it says something about... Now, sometimes it really feels like the battle is pitched and it's, and it's, it's, it's almost one-to-one against each other. But at the end of the day, God rules supreme. That's the order of this world. It's an important doctrine for us to remember. Another one is this idea that morality is of God. Um, this is one of the... the we're not going to... And like I said last week, into the whole dis- discussion on evolution, although I'm happy to, to the extent I can discuss that topic, have that with anybody. Um, but, but what we need to understand is that in the biblical testimony, the concept of right and wrong, of morality, is of God. It comes from God. Now, there have been recent arguments trying to, uh, trying to argue that, uh, that there is a way to come up with right and wrong and morality based on sort of evolution. Uh, but it's a hard one to make, uh, and I know people make it, and some people might agree with it, but it's a hard one to make. It's a hard one to conclude that at the end of the day, the right thing to do is to lay down your life for somebody else when you're talking about survival of the fittest. So it's hard to make that argument. So that's something for us to be aware of as well, and, and this text speaks to that. And then uh, thirdly, um, this idea that sin is first and foremost against God. I think we diminish that truth too much, generally. I think I do, at least. That when we sin, we often are so quick to see how it offends others and harms others. And we get that. And we, we fail to see 
the extent to which our sin is first and foremost against God. It offends God first and foremost. And of course, it does harm the people around us, but we ought to be most aggrieved, and David models this in Psalm 51, we ought to be most aggrieved by how our sin affects God. And that's an important thing for us to remember. Okay, so those are just ones I wanted to hit really quickly. And then I wanted to focus in on this last one, which is really our big problem that comes out of this text and sets up the whole story of God. Very important that we grasp this and understand it. And that is our big problem in the whole story here, in the whole description of the fall, is that we want to take God's place. That's what sin is. It's, it's this being like God thing. We want to take God's place uh, there are lots of different ways we talk about this. We want to be like God. I love in the book that I'm recommending by Carson, he talks about de-godding God. In other words, taking God off his throne and, tr- and putting yourself there, trying to be God and, and, and make your own decisions that way. We could talk about self-sovereignty is another way to talk about it. Um, rather than God being sovereign over our lives, that we are sovereign over our lives or we try to be. I mean, it's kind of comical that we would even try to do this, right, because of who we are in relation to who God is. But we still try. We try to get on the throne in our lives. And, and how does it work itself out? This, the text shows us different ways. We try to define God in a particular way. We try to define him. And, and that's what the, the woman did and the serpent did in the beginning. Rather than referring to God as Lord God, the, the personal name, they, they sort of defined him in a more generic way, and, and by that we're able to push him off a little bit. And we have to be careful when we come to God that we don't come making God in our image, right? He's the one who makes us in his image. We don't get to make him in our image. We have to submit to who he is. And, and so that's one way in which we put ourselves on the throne. We define God instead of letting him define himself. We filter God. We filter God. Did God say, right? say. We want to kind of couch what he said in our own understanding and, and use it for our own purposes. So we filter God. We diminish God. He did not, you will not surely die, right? Clear words of God, and yet diminished as the serpent speaks them. Um, we decentralize God in our lives. We decentralize God in our lives. Uh, we, we, we elevate our personal desire over what God has said. So when the woman saw that it was good to eat, that's what she saw and what she wanted, and that's how we often function. Uh, we're not living for God we're not, or Christ. We're living for our own self-desires, our personal desires. That's how we put ourselves on the throne. And then lastly, uh, in the text, there's the man who shrinks back. He knows what's right and what's good, and yet he he, he's not courageous to follow God when it's hard. He's passive, and he shrinks back, and he says, she gave me the fruit, and I, I ate it. And he obeys his wife over God, and nobody should ever obey anybody over God. So we, our big problem is, is sin, and sin is putting ourselves on the throne, and it results in lives that are messy, messed up lives. And it results not only in messed up lives, but messed up communities and a messed up world and all those pieces. I mean, my life is messed up. It's a wreck. Now, you might say, well, okay, let's compare you to some other people. And by God's grace, I don't know. Yeah, there's some good things about my life that are, and God is in it and it's wonderful. But just clear that all the way and compare it to what it was supposed to be. Compare it to what it was supposed to be. 
It's a mess. It's a daily struggle against my own selfishness and and failure and inability to love the people around me and, and fear of following God. And I'm a wreck, really, when you get down to it. It's a mess. And, and, and I think that's true for just about every single one of us. And then when you multiply that by how many people are in the world and we're all functioning in that way, and then you try to create a society out of those kind of people, you know, what do you get? A bigger mess. And it just goes on and on. And then over time of us continually acting in selfish ways and in the world, and, and then we pile selfishness and sin on top of sin and selfishness, and our parents were sinful and they messed us up, and then now we're reacting to that and we're messing other people up and we're just going to do it in the opposite way than you know, they did it to us. And it just gets piled on and on and on. And it's a mess. And isn't it kind of nice to just sit there and be honest about that? Isn't it kind of nice to look at the world and go, yeah, not to pretend that this is perfect and how it's supposed to be. Not to pretend that our lives are exactly how they should be. Be able to say, yeah, it's a mess. Let's just call a spade a spade. It's a mess. It's not what it should be. And and the scripture gives us the freedom to do that. To stop pretending. To be real about what we see in our own lives and what's around us. And because of this sin, death entered in. And so then you've got all the stepchildren of death. You know, sickness and illness and all the stuff in the world. Those are all the result of this event that happened described here in Genesis 3. And I'll tell you, I watched, I, I, last week I shared about my friend Jeff Diaz-Lucky who passed away. And I watched this Friday as two 11-year-old boys shoveled dirt onto his grave after he'd passed away from cancer. And his 13-year-old daughter stood by watching and his wife stood by. And I'll tell you, I have never in my life, rarely have I seen something so painful as that. And why does that happen? Because of sin. And because of sin, death entered in. And we have this suffering and this mess. And it's painful. And as much as we don't want to, the Bible calls us to take responsibility for the way the world is. That's what it does. It's a human race. It's who we are. We've made a mess. I love the story of, of G.K. Chesterton. It's in the, it's in the book. Um, there was a some sort of journal that, that called for articles or, or at least a response to the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in, he said, Dear Sir, in your response to your question, what's, what's wrong with the world? I am. Very truly yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's right. That's, that's right. That's the appropriate way to see it. Now, you may list, be listening to that and you're thinking, man, this is depressing and it's just kind of getting worse. Um, and that's true. But i got to sit here for a second because it's really important that we grasp this doctrine. And I know that some of us 
really have a hard time admitting our own sinfulness. And maybe there can be lots of reasons for that. So maybe somebody abused us with that doctrine some, at some point in the past and really harmed us. And so now we have this allergic reaction to it. And so we want to run the other way. If there's any con- anybody ever talks about our own sinfulness, we just have this allergic reaction to it. And somehow, with God's grace, we have to get through that because it's really important for us to be able to sit in this doctrine for a minute and understand the sinfulness of human beings, because we can't move forward. We can't understand the rest of everything that happens unless we really grasp this doctrine and sit in it, and we can, we can understand it. We've got to sit there. I think of uh, you know, all the 12-step programs. You know, they always start off with this idea of admitting, right, whatever it is that you're engaged in, admitting that you have no control over it and that you're a wreck. And where do they get that? They got that because it's central to how any healing takes place in the world as God has made the world. You can't begin the journey of transformation and redemption without coming to grips with how bad things are. Okay, so I've hammered that one home. I hope, I hope, it's, I hope we're, we're sticking there because um, what happens next is, is that that would be completely hopeless except for what I say in verse 9 here uh, about this verse it would be hopeless that, that, we, that we understand that the world is a mess and it's because of us, except for verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I love that question. It changes everything. It begins this whole process of pursuit. God coming after us. And it's going to end, that question's going to end with, that where are you is going to end with God taking on flesh, entering into the world, living in this world, Jesus Christ living in this world, experiencing everything that we do, coming after us, pursuing us, being like us, and, and then uh, teaching us, and then going to the cross and dying for the atonement of our sins so that we could be clothed in righteousness, and then being raised from the dead to demonstrate the victory over sin, which is demonstrated by resurrection because there's no death anymore. See, it all hangs together. All of that is a result of this question, where are you? And God's decision to begin to pursue us. So just to finish off this morning, that's the question I want to end with. Where are you? Will you be found? Will we be found? By God. Will we raise up our hand and say, Here I am, God. I know you've been pursuing us down through the ages. And in the person of Jesus Christ, I recognize the fulfillment of that pursuit. And I want to come to Jesus Christ and place my trust in Jesus Christ. I want that atoning sacrifice that he offered to be applied to my life. That the, the dingy clothes and the, the flawed, imperfect clothes I've tried to clothe myself in, my, my filthy acts of righteousness might be wiped away and that you might clothe me in the righteousness that comes from God as a free gift. Here I am. Clothe me in your righteousness. And you might think that's just for the person who's newly seeking things of the Lord, but I don't think so. I think we have a tendency over and over and over again to forget. And daily we need to raise our hand and say, Here I am, Lord. Pursue me. Clothe me. 
restore me to yourself. All the messes that we've gotten ourselves into in this life, all the brokenness and pain and loss, they ultimately have their solution in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the truth of what the Scripture teaches. They ultimately have their solution in the person of Jesus. Now, it may be long-term solution. It may be short-term. God in His grace gives us enough of the solution now to carry us forward so that we'll ultimately get to the day when everything is solved, when we're in His presence. But we get part of that solution now, and it's a, it's a great blessing. And I'm reminded as we enter into communion together to celebrate this and to kind of say together, here I am, Lord. Something I was reading pointed this out. About this table that we come to together and we gather around. The serpent offered out to the woman and to the man, take and eat of the fruit. And it costs the serpent nothing to do that. And the promise of the serpent was empty. And on the other side of it was death. And we sit here this morning and we come forward and Jesus, symbolically through this table, but really in reality, stands reaching out to us and saying, take and eat. And what He offers us is not not the empty promise of disobedience, but the very body of his life. And it's not, a, it's not an empty offer that didn't cost him anything. It cost him everything. And the result, symbolically, of what we receive from Christ is the opposite of death. It's life. And how amazing is it after everything that happened in Genesis chapter 3 that we get this opportunity to come and try it again. To come to Jesus Christ who stands saying, take and eat. And the result of that gift is eternal life. It's newness, it's, it's heaven, it's redemption, it's all that's good. Lord, help us to come to this table in faith knowing of your great mercy upon us and praising you that in that moment you did not turn your back, but you pursued us even to the point of entering into this world, taking on flesh, offering yourself on the cross and demonstrating the victory and the resurrection. It's in that knowledge that we come forward to share in this wonderful blessing together. In Christ's name, amen.